Welcome to the teaching ministry of Rev. Daryl Baker, pastor of Christian Faith Fellowship. Pastor Baker is fulfilling the call of God on his life to preach the Word of God without compromise. Raising up disciples who through faith in God will have a powerful impact on our world. May you be blessed through the message that Pastor Baker has to share with you today. May God's very best be yours. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 4 tonight. If you notice on your notes, turn over there to 2 Timothy chapter 4, if you would turn there. So this is a teaching that you won't hear very often in many churches. It's called the excuses of the last days. What are the excuses of the last days? We are warned by Jesus in scripture and the apostle Paul about warnings, warnings of the last days of things that people would make an excuse for, of why not, why not to walk with God, why not to stay faithful to God, or His house, or the things of God, etc. So we are warned about this in Scripture, so that you and I, obviously, if we start seeing some of these excuses pop in our life, we need to deal with them and address them, praise God. Or even other believers, you know. We're not just gleaning this for ourselves. This is to help us to help others as well. That if we know people that are kind of going this direction, we want to do everything we can to rescue them. Amen? Our heart's desire as a ministry is to truly help everybody to understand who they are and walk that out fully as a child of God. And therefore to truly walk in victory and help others to overcome as well. So if you notice on your notes there under the title, The Excuses of the Last Days. So here's an illustration that Pastor Barclay actually got from a vision that the Lord gave him that he shared in this teaching. One day in prayer, Brother Barclay saw a vision of a hypodermic needle floating in front of him in midair. As he asked the Lord what it meant, the Lord began to show him. The Lord said the devil was inoculating God's people with a slow, oozing death. That the devil was inoculating God's people with a slow, oozing death. This death was the spirit of the world. Underline that. What is he inoculating Christians with slowly? He's inoculating them with the slow, oozing death of the spirit of this world. So it's not like an instant change or an immediate complete denial of the things of God or walking away. It's like the slow oozing process of inoculating them little by little with the spirit of the world. Reading on, the people of God would then what? Slowly turn from right living and go back to the world. It would take a season, but then all would see it. Now I'm going to tell you, there's nothing to me that's more difficult to see as a pastor than to watch people that you've pastored who at one time, years ago, were hot for God. I mean, really hot for God. I mean, never miss a service, excited to be in church, excited to serve, looking for things to do. Pastor, what can I do? How can I help? And they go from that to the process of less and less services, less and less serving in the house of God. All of a sudden, you start seeing their life going back to the ways of the world, 
back to the things of the world, attraction of the world, and less and less of God. Now, I guarantee you the Bible said that this would happen. It was prophesied that it would take place. I've told multiple pastors this that I take care of, as well as ministers that I talk to on a consistent basis. I say, you are in one of the most challenging times as a minister of God, according to the Bible. Love of many growing cold, that they would obviously many turn lukewarm. The Bible said many would be deceived, that to be many false prophets who would deceive many. On and on we could go. So, you know, to me, it's really clear that you and I need to make sure we guard our life. Thank God we have the help of the Holy Spirit to do that, and we don't have to fall prey to any of that. You know, I, I've been recently asked by a couple people about this reason, recent issue with this famous pastor talking about tithing is not uh, biblical and I renounce all my teachings. Why are you not addressing it? Because you shouldn't be listening to him to begin with. It's not a spiritual father to us. Uh, we're not connected with him in any way. But I'm going to tell you, this is a part of what we're seeing, of what the Bible said would happen, that even some of the elect would be deceived. Even some of the elect. Now, I will guarantee you, I know... Of those who he calls his spiritual parents, they don't agree with him <laughs> at all. So we need to be careful, but I guarantee to guard against that stuff, just stop listening to people that aren't connected to you spiritually. Amen? Second Timothy chapter 4. Notice this. As Paul here is writing to a young pastor, Timothy, by the Holy Spirit, we're going to look at verse 9 and 10. He warns Pastor Timothy here, be diligent to come to me quickly for, notice this, this is why I needed him, Demas has forsaken me. <clears throat> Demas has forsaken me. Now, that might not sound like much to you, but if you think about the New Testament time frame in which this was actually being written, who was the one seeing more miracle manifestations, more of the moves of God in his life, more people obviously responding to that in relationship to salvations, etc., than anybody else that we know of at the time in the New Testament on the planet. The Apostle Paul. Why would you bail on a person like that? I mean, let alone the fact that you shouldn't want to ever bail on somebody who God called you to, but this guy had more evidence of his walk of faith and what he was doing for God of any of the apostles. There was. And yet, guess what? People even betrayed him. People even left him. So here is Demas, it says, that had forsaken him. Why? Notice, for Demas has forsaken me, underline it, having loved this present world. Having what? Loved this present world. And he's departed. He's departed for Thessalonica. Cretans for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. Now notice this again. Why did Demas forsake him? Because he has loved this present world. Why did he say this present world? How many know there's a new world coming? Glory to God. That one's going to be perfect. Just like this one was when it was first created. So he's talking about the very present one in existence. And when he talks about the world, is he talking about the, the ball of earth we're standing on? No. He's talking about what it's become of a system of what Satan has done to take control of what most of the things that obviously occur and happen in this world that aren't obviously being instituted or brought forth by God. So he's telling us Demas has fallen back in love with the world. How many know Demas, obviously clearly what he was walking with Paul and helping Paul, had walked away from a love for the world. Amen? Amen. But now he's done what? He's gone back to falling in love with this present world. I'm going to add a bonus verse tonight. <coughs> Go to 1 John Chapter 2, and again it says, having loved this present world, he has now what? Forsaken him. And, a real, and realize again, that's a process. 
That's a process. What would that picture look like to all of a sudden go back to loving this present world? It begins with you getting attention back on things of the world that you once were committed to, that you once had a total passion and desire for, but you eventually turned that over to God. But slowly, you allowed those things to start getting your attention again and drawing you back. Or you allowed other people to lie to you, deceive you, mislead you, and make you think, come on, man, these pastors telling you you need to be in church and you need to read your Bible and you need to do this. Well, you don't need to do any of that if you don't want to walk close with God. But this is God. The Bible's God. Church is God. Jesus had a zeal for God's house. You know why? Because it's God's house. Because it's tied to what? God. So the point is, none of this is about a religion, as you know, or a you know, have-to type of lifestyle. Nobody has to do any of this. It's all about building relationship with God. 1 John 2, 15, I'm going to throw in these little bonus verses here to go with this. Notice this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. So what did Demas, what is Demas in this context that we read a minute ago in Timothy, what did Demas do? He had gone back to love in the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, notice this, underline it, the love of the Father is not what? Now that doesn't mean he's not born again anymore. God's love is poured out in your heart. Romans 5, 5, at the time you're born again. What does that phrase actually mean? That phrase means that he does not any longer have a passion, a love for the Father. What that scripture tells you is you can't love the world and love God at the same time. It's not possible. And therefore, that's why we want to give our total love and devotion to God. Because if we do, guess what? We're going to love people better. We're going to walk in a position close to God who is love himself. But if we wind up starting to draw back to falling in love with the world or the things of this world, how many know that the love of the Father is going to go out the door? Notice this. So then he kind of defines what happens in this love for the world. He says all that's in the world refers to three things. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So that describes what we got to beware of. That could cause us to fall back in love with the world. And he says in verse 17, the world is passing away. Sorry, all you liberals who want to save the planet. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. God's going to burn it up. Man's not going to burn it up. God is. Isn't it funny today in Texas, we're being told, hey, 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 hey. Between 2 and 9 today, because of the heat advisory, we need you to conserve energy. So turn your your thermostats up. Turn lights off. Quit using electricity that you don't need. But yet our government is telling me and you that we need to go green and buy battery-powered cars so you can plug in all your battery-powered cars to go green, but you can't have your air conditioner running, can't have your lights on. But it's okay to plug. They're not telling anybody who has battery-powered cars to unplug them, right? But you got to do all these other things. See, this is what happens when you start falling in love with the world. Because when you fall in love with the world, if you're in love with the world, guess what you start losing? Common sense. Seriously. You, I mean, think about it. If you knew Satan had any common sense about him, right, he would have never rebelled against God. Think about it. He, he was in the presence of God. He was the leader of worship in God. So basically, I like to quote Lester Summerall here, sin will make you stupid. You start doing things that are opposite of what the Bible says, and that's even following in love with the world. And guess what? Common sense goes out the window. 
Verse 17, notice this. So the world is passing away in the lust of it. Underline it. This is powerful. But he who does the will of God. He who what? Does the will of God. Does what? He abides forever. So I want to go back here for just a moment to verse 16. Because obviously realizing that anyone, uh, point number one on your notes, anyone can fall prey to the devil's trickery. How does that happen? How does somebody fall prey to the devil's trickery and start making excuses about their walk with God? Obviously, in doing so, falling back in love with the world. So I wanted to show you about how that happens. Verse 16. So all that's in the world involves what? One, lust of the flesh. If you want to make a little extra side notes there on your notes, you might want to do this. But this is what you do to avoid falling in love with the world. Lust of the flesh means that you are going to give your carnal desires whatever they want. You're going to give your carnal desires whatever they want. Whatever you will, doesn't matter what the Father wills, whatever you will, that's what you're going to do. If you want to give somebody a piece of your mind, you're going to. If you want to, you know, go off and, you know, do other things and honor God with your life, you can, etc., etc. So lust of the flesh is simply nothing more than your will, your carnal, willish desires overtaking what God desires for your life, and you start giving in to those. The second thing he talks about is the lust of the eyes. So that's us now getting a focus upon stuff of the world and now desiring that more than God. So the first part has to do with fleshly carnal desires. The second part has to do with covetousness, that now we start looking at things that we've got to have, and all of a sudden that becomes a priority. We'll do anything to get it. And then the third thing is the pride of life. What's the pride of life? Then we go to the ultimate back, uh, backslidden state, of simply doing what? What we want to do. Because the pride of life means I decide now what I want to do. I'm not subjecting myself to God anymore. It begins by allowing your flesh to get out of control. You start looking at the wrong things and it leads to now you calling the shots for your own life again. I mean, you know, we shouldn't do that. I mean, you know, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 tells me and you, you've been bought with a price. You're not your own. You belong to God. So if that's true, I don't ever want to call the shots in my life. Number one, just because not only that I belong to him, but he knows more than I do. And if I do what he says, my life's going to be a whole lot better off. How many would agree with that? So let's now go to Luke 17. And we'll start seeing here of some last day's teachings of Jesus. <coughs> excuse me. In Luke 17... We'll begin to see through these teachings of Jesus some warnings here about excuses of the last days. And these warnings he gives of these excuses of the last days, he's going to relate to two different people here in the book of Luke, Noah and Lot, in relationship to what they did in their day, what was going on in their day. Excuses people make. How many of Noah was a preacher of righteousness? And he was proclaiming to people, come help me build this ark. And if you do, guess what? God will spare you. I kind of feel like a Noah today because in the context of Noah's day, nobody listened to him but his family. Seven people. Think about that. Think about all the people on the planet that perished and they didn't have to. And Noah, Jesus literally said Noah was a preacher of righteousness, preaching that which was right in the sight of God. And people just ignored him. Just ignored him. Well, guess what? I'll guarantee you, if you preach what's right in the sight of God from the Bible today, people ignore you. Why would they ignore you? Why would people all of a sudden start ignoring stuff in Scripture? Guarantee you, like he said, what's happened? Their love has begun to start drawing away from God and back onto the things of the world. 
So here in Luke chapter 17 and verse 26, let's look at point number two, the excuses of Noah's day. Verse 26 and 27. And it was in the days of Noah. In whose day? In whose day? Days of Noah. Guess what? Jesus said, so will it also in, so will it be also in the days of the Son of Man. Now the days of the Son of Man is talking about when he returns. His appearing. So he's literally saying, just like it was in Noah's day, in the context of when he was alive, it'll be the same when it will actually come into manifestation of the sun appearing. 27, they ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. What's going to happen when Jesus returns? There's not going to be an immediate quote-unquote, destruction of the earth, what's going to happen is there's going to be a rapture of the church, of those that are ready. What's going to follow? We just went through all this in our Revelation study. Three and a half years of tribulation. The beginning of the wrath of God. And then the latter part of the three and a half years of tribulation, a true outpouring of God's wrath upon this earth, which was what the flood was. It was a type of God's judgment in that day. But guess what? They could have avoided it. And so can people on the planet. Amen? So Jesus is telling us here. Now, interesting, he didn't say you just got to be born again. He said, as in the days of Noah, it'll be just like in the day when I return. And in the days of Noah, they made excuses, right? So let's go through these excuses here of Noah's day. Number two, the first one, eating. Question, is there anything wrong with eating? Tell your neighbor, it's a good thing to do. Tell your neighbor, it's a good thing to do if you want to keep living. Right? Is he saying don't eat anything? No. This is talking about being given to appetite. Being given to fleshly appetites. So all of a sudden that's controlling you now. Now I want you to see this 2A, uh, verse, uh, 2A number, point number one under eating. This is not just overeating, but being given to appetites and the lusts of the flesh. Being given to uh, physical appetites of the carnal man. And lust of the flesh. So it's not just referring to food. It's just talking about consuming things. Got to have it. Right? So this is what's actually going to happen, even already happening, in the time frame of which Jesus would return. Uh, Point two under uh, the eating phrase there under A. One of the major battles of the last days, underline it, will be to keep your flesh under. One of the major battles of the last days will be to keep your flesh under and do what? Control your appetites. Now, again, I'm not going to get off on this too far because people don't like me doing it. But I would include even dealing with how you eat. Because obviously, even as it relates to food, that can lead to other indulgences if you just give your body whatever you want to eat, as much as it wants, whenever you want. Well, that's certainly not good either. So realize this is just referring to uh, fleshly appetites. The second thing he said they would do, is, uh, or they did like in the days of Noah, they would do in this day, drinking. To be drinking. Point number one, this not only means the actual intake of alcohol, but the whole idea of what? Socializing. Socializing. Why do most people drink? Well, honest truth is the majority actually do so to socialize. They go to bars to hang out with other people. Been there, done that. That doesn't mean everybody does. Some people drink for different reasons. But the, but the point is, the majority in Noah's day Oh, why were they drinking? It wasn't just because I'm upset or mad or whatever, because they wanted to socialize. They wanted to get together. They wanted to have their time together. Instead of doing what? 
going and helping Noah build an ark and prepare for a flood that was coming. Nope, I'm going to go socialize instead. Now realize, and I'm not going to get off in this too far, people still want to question the alcohol thing. Question what you want. But I'm going to tell you right now, if you study this out, if you go to Old Testament verses that talk about wine, it refers to it as strong drink. It refers to it as something that that in their day, kings were not allowed to do. You know why? Because even a little bit of alcohol content can make you cause, cause you to make wrong decisions to the degree that obviously you get in a mindset you shouldn't be, not just drunk, but influenced by the alcohol. Uh, If you go study clearly, which most people don't want to do, they just want to have their wine for their meal, fine. Drink whatever you want. I'm not going to get in your personal life. I'm not going to come to your house. Do whatever you want. But the wine of the day that we have is not like Jesus' day. It's easy. John MacArthur's pointed this out. We got a, a, a book that we've shared with you before. I wish it was still in print, but it's a close friend of pastors. It hasn't been reprinted in a long time. But it's a powerful book that's a whole study of the actual time in which Jesus lived. What was alcohol? What was wine? Was there a difference? And does wine mean always with alcohol content? Wine itself was the juice extracted from the grapes, from whatever they were extracting it from, and then mixed with water. And when it was mixed with water, if you actually wanted to go a long ways where people would not get as, you know, much of the juice, they would mix a lot of water with it and water it down. Sure, if it sat over time, it could build toxins in it. But the point was of the day of which you had the best wine, it was the freshest squeezed juice with the perfect amount of water in it to dilute it, to make it palatable. So basically, what was it? Fruit juice. It's like a fruit juice. That's what it was. So a lot of people get into this, oh, well, I want to drink alcohol. Drink, drink to your heart's content if you want. But if you're going to sit here and tell me that Jesus actually allowed this and did it himself as a way that was acceptable for society, ladies and gentlemen, here's what I've got to throw out to you. Then why in the world in the New Testament does it tell us not even to eat meat offered to idols if that would become a stumbling block to somebody else? Now, if I'm not to eat meat... In front of somebody that that meat was offered to an idol, that would become a stumbling block to them to cause them to stumble in their walk with God. And I'm told in the New Testament not to do that. You think it's okay to drink alcohol content with other people that have drinking problems that look at believers and say, see, it's okay to drink because they drink. I guarantee you, you became a stumbling block no different than a person that ate, ate meat offered to an idol. This ain't hard to figure out. But it doesn't just refer to that. It really refers to also what? Socializing. What do you mean? Socializing becomes more important than walking with God. Even in the context of the church, people would rather spend time socializing than being taught the word, ministering the word, doing things together to help their community. Well, see, that's what he's talking about. They obviously didn't want to help Noah build the ark. Why? Too busy socializing. Uh, uh, B2, many churches are now even turning to social events and entertainment to draw crowds. So, you know, it has become a deal for a long time now to get people to come to your church. You know what they do? Bingo night, all these social events, etc. I'm not going to try to tell you it's right or wrong. I'm just going to tell you that's not the heart of what church is about to try to get people to come to church. We come to be equipped to do the work of ministry. Any amens on that? So I'm not saying any of those other things are necessarily wrong, but when that becomes the focus of church to try to bring people to church, you are obviously going the wrong direction. 
Uh, under B, number three, others are actually now becoming what is very easily known in our day now as user-friendly. This was written back in the 70s, by the way, when Pastor wrote this. It was because they are becoming very user-friendly or visitor-friendly churches, even at the cost of compromising the, 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 the gospel. Question, should we be so concerned about sinners coming into church that we don't teach the whole Bible because we don't want to offend a sinner? Jesus never stopped teaching the whole truth and was preaching to sinners. Jesus didn't preach to a single born-again child of God. Every person he preached to had not been saved. He hadn't died yet. So he's preaching to sinners. The church, again, is not a place that's supposed to get friendly. I don't mean don't be friendly to sinners. Hello. We should all want to love on people when they come in. My point is we are not going to change the preaching of the gospel to adapt to the sinner because if we do, guess what we're not going to do? Equip the saints. So a lot of churches have. They have now compromised in the message they teach and in what they do. I posted it today. I understand you can go too long in services. Obviously, as a minister, you learn that you can go far beyond what God wanted you to do. But you know, isn't it funny? People can go to a rodeo or a roping event. They can go to a ball game, whether it's football, baseball, basketball. I mean, they can go to a movie. Most of these events are two-plus hours long. Very few are under two hours at all, ever. They can go do hobbies like fishing all day long on a lake. You, you name some type of thing that people can do. They don't complain about the hours they go and do those other things. But you're going to cut. You don't. I'm just saying. You're going to come to church and you're going to complain about a two-hour church service? The service is too long. Let me help you. The length of the service is not the problem, folks. If you have no problem doing those other things and don't complain about the length of those things, but you complain about the length of the service, I can take you back to the book of Acts and show you services so long that after midnight, remember the guy, Eutychus, fell asleep in the window and fell down? And when they raised him from the dead, they didn't stop. Paul preached on into the morning. Now, I'm just telling you, man, there's a time now that we're living in that people want to actually have the, the actual services adapted to them. Let's make it comfortable for the people coming so they keep coming. I'll guarantee you Jesus didn't do that and the disciples didn't do that. That is what is, again, part of socializing. B4. Remember that true fellowship is in what? True fellowship is in Christ. And true fellowship is working together in Jesus' ministry, not playing together. See, we think fellowship is playing together. No, that's not fellowship. We oftentimes even here label the thing, hey, we're going to have a church fellowship. But the truth is, the Bible word for fellowship is what? Can somebody tell me? Partnership. partnership means you're partnering. You're a part of what is being accomplished to work together. You know, when we come here, we do work on the property. Or we come here and do the work of the Lord like we're doing tonight. You know what we're doing? Partnership. Fellowship. That's true Bible fellowship because it's in Christ. Amen. To see the third thing mentioned there in the days of Noah, they were marrying. Anything wrong with getting married? Nope, not what it's referring to. But we live in a day where people marry several, several times over and even have same-sex marriages. Even have same-sex marriages. Now, we're not talking about here dealing with people who may have gotten married, the marriage didn't work out, they remarry. Is that wrong? No, not biblically. What we're talking about is people that take marriage lightly to the degree that it doesn't matter if I get married and the marriage works out or not, because if it don't, I'll just divorce them and find somebody else. It's the casual attitude. You listening? It's the casual attitude that somebody takes today with marriage that marriage is not that big of a deal. Let me help you. It's a covenant. It's a covenant between you, them, and God. 
Now, understandably, it takes two people to make that covenant work. But this is referring to people themselves who go into marriage like it doesn't matter anymore. It's no big deal. Come on, if we don't get along, we just divorce, we find somebody else, and we just keep redoing it. But that's not what God intended. Can I get a better amen? So the point there of what he talked about in the days of Noah about them marrying is they didn't take it serious. They didn't pray about that decision. They didn't really look at context what they were committing to. They had no form of understanding of what they're committing to. It was just, okay, why don't we go get married? We'll see if it works. If it don't, it don't. No big deal. We'll just move on, find somebody else. But that's not how God wants us to look at it. C2, notice this. Pastor said here, I have seen many good young people cool off their walk with Christ once they marry and even more so when they begin to have children. Because another side of that is once they get married, then sometimes the family becomes the God. And they start actually uh, contact, they start walking in a position of of a love for their uh, spouse and a love for their children more than a love for God. How many know Jesus said in Luke 14, if you love anybody more than you love me, you can't be my disciple. So the other side of that is you can't put your family above God. Your, your relationship with God, etc. doesn't mean you can't fulfill your responsibilities in a marriage you're supposed to. I tell people all the time before they get married, if you don't want to change, don't go to that altar. If you don't want to change how you're living right now, don't go to that altar. If you want to keep living the way you're living now, please don't go to that altar. Because if you get married, guess what? Change is coming if you want that marriage to work. Because now you got some, you got other responsibilities you didn't have before. Somebody you need to help take care of. So marriage is a good thing in the sight of God. It's not bad. Don't look at it as horrible or bad. It's just talking about people that take it lightly. All right? You still with me? 2D. And also it said in the days of Noah, not only marrying, but they were what? Given in marriage. Now this refers, D1, that many people put their marriages again above their walk with Jesus. And they don't even realize that all this, all this does is what? It'll destroy their marriages. So, in the context of giving in marriage, they're focused on their marriage being the primary part of their life. That leads to two, many young people do what? They put their hope for, excuse me, they put their hope for future marriage above all else. Even moms talk in the nurseries about who their toddler is going to marry one day. You need to leave that up to God. I said, you need to leave that up to God. The point here is, you don't put marriage above God. You don't put marriage above God. So in all of that, E, the point of what he said happened in Noah's day simply came down to what? There was no conviction any longer. None of them were being convicted in Noah's day about their wrong, how they were living. If Noah was a preacher of righteousness, and obviously why did God bring the flood? Does anybody remember? Sin was so rampant. God literally said he was grieved that he made man. That's how bad sin was. So clearly, what do you think, if Noah was a preacher of righteousness, is he just telling him to build an ark? Do you think that's all he's saying? No, he's saying you are living a sinful life in which God cannot continue to bless. And if you don't all of a sudden repent and get over here and help me build this ark, you're not going to be part of those who are going to be spared. Well, guess what? None of them had conviction about their lifestyle. None of them did. Why? None of them helped. 
Nobody but the seven in his family. Nobody listened to Noah. And again, I'm not trying to, I'm not like, woe is me. I'm just telling you, pastors of the day, you feel like, you literally feel like Noah. You know, you keep telling people what the Bible says. Man, they don't care. They get no conviction of heart over what they're doing. And most of them obviously even say, oh, you're just a clothesline preacher. You just into all this, you know, bondage to the Bible and all this kind of stuff. No, man, living out the truth is freedom, not bondage. So I want you to see this under E, no conviction of the hour one. God's people seem to have always, this is powerful. You ought to underline the statement or circle it. God's people seem to have always been plagued with not knowing the hour that they live in. The people of Noah's day did not realize the hour they lived in. If they truly knew and believed and understood the hour they lived in, that judgment was coming, how many know their life would have been different? But they didn't see it. How about all those that stood there and looked at Jesus face to face and denied that he was the Messiah? They didn't see him as the Messiah. They didn't see him as the Son of God standing right from any idea how many of those people today in hell, hopefully some in heaven, maybe repented, are really understanding how bad off things were that I was that deceived to not even know the Son of God was standing in front of me? That's, that'd be horrible. I said that'd be horrible. E2, Noah preached to his generation, and guess what? Guess what? They still didn't get the message. They didn't get it. Uh, and, and Jesus said it'll be the same way in his day. We're, going, we're not going to stop preaching the message, but many won't get it. They won't get it. E3, notice this. All through the Bible, you see God's people what? Missing the times and the seasons. Say, I'm not going to do that. So if you're not going to do that, what's that mean? What are you going to know you're living in right now? Last of the last days. You're going to be aware of the time and the season you're in. And you're going to take to heart what the Bible teaches you should do. You're not going to take this as just, oh, this just pastor trying to, you know, get us all to be afraid of Jesus. No, I'm not trying to get you to be afraid. I'm trying to get you prepared. All right. E, E4, notice this. Even the Jews, even the Jews missed Jesus clearly and were way out of his timing. E5, Jesus said he would come, what? In an hour, we do not what? We do not expect. Guess what? This is that hour, folks. In fact, some believe he isn't coming at all. That's a fact. Who claim that they're believers. So we're going to move on here in Luke 17. But before we do, I want to, I want to point out something here real quick about that point five. I remember back in the 70s, pastor talking about it. I didn't know him then. I wasn't born again yet. Pastor said back in the 70s, every prophet was saying, Jesus is coming any day. I mean, any day he's going to be here. He's going to catch away the church. And they would all prophesy it's going to happen any day. Could happen tomorrow. He could be here tomorrow. And they would all come to Dr. Barclay and say, we don't understand. You claim you're a prophet of God. He said, well, yeah. He said, uh, they'd say, well, how come you're not prophesying Jesus is coming any day? He, he couldn't be. Why not? I'll tell you why. The majority of the church back then thought he was. In the 70s, during the Jesus movement, almost every believer loved being in church. Way different than today. You wouldn't see all these empty chairs today in the 70s. You listening? I mean, believers were hungry for God, wanted to be in God's house, wanted to serve God. But you know what Pastor Barclay said? I'm going to tell you why I know. That he's not coming any day. Because Jesus said, I'm coming at a time when most of you won't even expect it. And right now, most of the body of Christ is expecting it. You want to know the day you're living in? Most are not. Look at how they're living. Look at what they're doing. Guess what, Christian? What's that a sign to you? We're in that day. We're in that day and hour of his appearing. Any amens on that? 
Luke 17, picking up in verse 28. So now we're going to see about the day of Lot. Likewise, this is still talking about the day of the Lord, the return of Jesus. As it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on that day, notice again, on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Once again, another type of judgment dealing with a very sinful society to the degree that they were so sinful it was constantly talked about in, con- in the day that where, where Lot lived in, in Sodom, it, that they had, now we use the phrase sodomy, of actually taking advantage of people with sex acts, different sex acts. It was so rampant. It was so horrible. And so Lot and his family got out, but how many know his wife turned back? Verse 30, even so, just like Lot's day, even so it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who's in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. We're going to talk about that. 33, whoever seeks to save his life is going to do what? Lose it. Whoever loses his life will do what? Preserve it. 34, I tell you, in in that night, there will be two men in one bed. One will be taken, the other will be left. Now, the phrase there actually is not men. It's just talking about humans because a lot of people refer to the fact, obviously, it must be referring to homosexuals. Not true. It's just talking about two people in a bed. And one will be taken, one will be left. Verse 35, two women will be grinding together at a mill. One will be what? Taken. And the other will be what? Left. This is the rapture, folks. 36, two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other will be... How I many do not want to be the left? No. Verse 37, they answered and they said to him, where, uh, where, Lord? In other words, where will this happen? So he said to them, wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. So go to your notes if you would. Let's go through the excuses, therefore, of the days of uh, the day of Lot. Excuses of Lot's day. Similar to uh, Noah's day, we've already covered them. 3A, they ate. 3B, they drank. We've already covered those. But it adds one here. Adds one in Lot's day. 3C, they bought. Doesn't say that about Noah's day, but it said that about Lot's day. What does that refer to? C1, is it okay to buy things? Yeah, do you need to buy gas for your car? Do you need to buy groceries? So again, we got to know he's clarifying something different than just buying things. C1, people of this day, guess what? They were all caught up in spending and they would do anything at all to get ahead or keep up with the uh, Joneses. wonder who the Joneses are. I don't know. But the whole point is, if they've got a 70-inch TV, I need a 70-inch. I only got a 55. And six months later, they go buy an 80. Oh, my gosh, have you seen our neighbors? They got an 80 now. I got to go buy an 85. So this is what it's talking about. The quote-unquote buying means uncontrollable, Totally controlled, as we talked about, by lustful desires, thinking i got to have these things. C2, notice these people are, many of them are in deep debt because of a lack of what? Self-discipline. And now they work double jobs to pay the interest. they got to have all the newest things, all the gadgets, whatever. they got to have it, got to have it, got to have it. And, you know, in the context of the, the you know, credit cards and bankers, many of them will just give you the credit cards and the loans. But all of a sudden, people trying to keep up with the payment just to pay the interest are having to do what? Work multiple jobs now just to try to make the payments on all the stuff they got. 
You'd be better off without all the stuff and have some peace in your home. C3, many people are sucked in by the spending compulsion. They just have to spend no matter what. Sad to say, I knew somebody, nobody would know who I'm referring to today except one person which they would agree with me, not around anymore. This was a person in our family by marriage, and this was somebody who had to have something new every week. Every week. New clothes, new shoes, new gadget, new something. And sadly, guess what it drove them to? Bankruptcy. Bankruptcy. Working all the jobs they could, had to have this cool speedboat, had to have a new home, had to have new clothes, had to have new cars, and they finally got to the point where they couldn't keep up with the payments, working as much as they could, and they went into bankruptcy. So obviously, there's still people that have problems with this. How many of you know that if you and I will seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, these things will be added unto us? So uh, 3D, they also now added to this, they sold. Different than Noah's day, they also sold. What's this mean? Uh, D1, making a buck is the all in all to some men. Because obviously to make money, you got to sell things. Even selling of your time, obviously you give of your time to, you know, to go to work. But to some people in the day we live, man, making a buck is what it's all about. They'll sacrifice above measure. To make a dollar, but they won't lift a hand monthly to serve in the church. Think about that. <clears throat> There's people that will do nothing to serve in the church, but they'll sacrifice anything to make another buck. 2D. I'm not talking about you. Just get a, get, get a smile on your face and say amen or something. Praise the Lord. 2D. Some men would sell their... <laughs> this pastor just put this in here. Some men would sell their grandmother's walker to put the money in their hobby or craft. D3, others have turned, this has happened, others have turned the whole church setting into their business field of recruiting from vitamin salesmen, cleaning supplies, dentists, and builders, etc. Is it okay through personal relationship in, in relationship to other people in the church to be able to sell things to them? Absolutely. The point is you don't come into the church for that purpose. That's not why you come to church. We've had people, I'll never forget a couple, actually wasn't that long ago, it was while, I think, was it while we were here, still here, and in this building, I think, maybe? So it was Roanoke, so we were in Roanoke. We had a couple came, they'd been there for a couple weeks, and it was made known to me, they were doing these multi-level marketing business things, you know, and going to everybody in the church. So I finally caught up with them one day at the church after a service, started talking to them, and they were just totally honest about it. They said, Pastor, we're just going to let you know, I don't know, we might be here for a year or so, but we go from church to church. We get as many people involved in our multi-level marketing process as we can because we're just blessing them also. By them becoming a part about it, becoming a part of it, we're helping them, and we're helping to bless the people in the kingdom. And so as soon as we get enough people, uh, obviously sign up here and nobody else will sign up we'll move on to the next church I said and you think you're blessing people by doing that oh yeah God called us to this no he didn't matter of fact I can show you where he overturned money, ta money changers tables in the, in, the in the synagogue in the church oh you just don't understand no I understand perfectly I said you don't go to church for any biblical reason oh yeah we do no you don't you're supposed to go find a shepherd and get equipped to do the work of the ministry not sell your multi-level marketing stuff because the truth is, you can claim you're helping other people, but who's the ultimate one actually benefiting from all that? Who's at the top of the tier there? You are. So we're talking about people that they come to church for the sole reason of trying to sell their stuff. How I many you know that's not what God's house is for?
Uh, D4, I think it's great though when church family helps each other out. You got something you have a need of, something the church does it, wonderful. Absolutely, I'll never have a problem with anybody referring people, etc. But that's not, why, that's not the heart of why we come to church. D4, some will do what? They'll even scam church people again till they can't get nothing else out of them. They'll move on to another church and they'll just do it again and again and again. So another thing mentioned here in Lot's day that was not in Noah's day, E, they planted. They planted. Isn't it amazing that it's harvest time? If we're in the last days, what is it? Harvest time. It's harvest time. But so many people are what? Sowing as if it's early planting season. What does that mean? They're spending all their time sowing of their time, their efforts, and their life into the things of the world instead of doing what they can to harvest souls. You understand that? So their focus is, I'm sowing all my time, my money, my effort into things of the world instead of doing what? Focusing on harvesting the souls that are obviously available to be harvested. Uh, F, they also did something different in Noah's day. They built. Here we go again. People are what? They're storing up for themselves rather than emptying their treasuries. They forget that you can't take it with you. So the built here refers, remember, the, the person that Jesus referred to who had so much his barns couldn't hold it all? What did he do? Built a bigger barn. Why? Just to hold more. Now you should go give away what you got. God will just keep replenishing it. F2, they build their businesses, their mansions, their hobbies and crafts, etc., rather than doing what? Building the kingdom of God. You think when people get to heaven, nothing wrong with this, I'm serious. But again, do you think when people get to heaven, God's going to look at you and say, man, what a great uh, bowler you became. You know, what a great golfer you became. Boy, I'm telling you, you became one of the best golfers I've ever seen. Now, he's going to say, hey, uh, well done, good and faithful servant for reaping people into the kingdom. Anything wrong with golfing? Not if it doesn't overtake your walk with God. Not if it doesn't become more important than your walk with God. Uh, G, they also did what? They got caught up in life. They got caught up in life. Meaning what? They got caught up with stuff. Back to verse 31. Told you I was going to go back to this. In that day, he who was on the housetop and his what? His what? His goods. He's on the housetop. He's outside of his home. And his goods are in the house. Don't come back down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field... Let him not turn back. So what's this referring to? This is not referring to Jesus is there in the air and you're going to go down in your house and try to grab everything and take it with you. No, it's talking about he's talked about he's coming back, but you're too unwilling to let go of all of your stuff to serve God. You're too willing to let go of all your stuff to know, okay, he's coming. Let's get busy. Let's go do a work from God. No, I can't. I got too much stuff to do. Preaching better. Then you're amen. G1. Jesus taught and warned us about possessions and the shiny things of this life. Two. He actually tells us of those who know the Lord is coming. But what will they do? Go back into their house to get their stuff. They're focused on their stuff instead of preparing for the Lord's return. Three. He said not to go after your stuff, but rather do what? Seek him first and his kingdom. Any amens on that? For even though you live in America and you see it all, listen, don't you dare get caught up in this riotous living. And you're going to come back and rule and reign for a thousand years. Why fight and, you know, and scrap and kick to try to get all the stuff of this world when you're going to come back here for a thousand years and rule and reign? And guess what? It's still all going to be here. 
You know the funny part is, when you come back in a glorified body, you can just think of somewhere you want to be on the planet and you're there. You know the Bible reveals this? You know what? All that stuff ain't going to matter to you. <laughs> you're going to say, really? I could care less about that. You kidding? Look what I can do, praise God. Amen? I said amen? H, the last one. You got to be careful of the spirit of the world. This is this last verse about the eagles in verse 37. Just like the Lord showed Brother Barclay about the hypodermic needle and the spirit of the world, you stay clear of it and away from its draw. What do you mean? Look at verse 37. So after all these things, he warned about the days of Noah and Lot. Notice what he said. They answered and they said to him, where, Lord, is all this stuff going to happen? So he gave them an example. Where the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Now realize, you understand eagles are scavengers? Yeah, they eat, they eat dead animals as well. But the phrase eagle here really kind of refers to what we, we would know more of a buzzard. You know, that type of an actual bird. Where do they go? Where there's obviously bodies, physical bodies around. What's he saying? Where is the devil going to try to go after people? Wherever people's bodies come together and congregate to do things of the flesh, guess what? Satan's going to try to come down on those people and take advantage of them. Stay away from it. Stay away from this inoculation of the world, and therefore you won't get caught up with all those people. All right, Luke 14. We will finish here tonight. On what Jesus said. How many of you are interested in knowing what Jesus said himself? So he talked about the days of Noah. He talked about the days of Lot. And in Luke 14, beginning in verse 15, he tells us directly himself some things about the last days. About excuses. People that make excuses in the last days. What we're talking about. 15. You still with me? Notice, now when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. That is the final meal, the, 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 the meal that we'll get to have with Jesus in heaven. Amen? Amen? Verse 16, notice what Jesus said. A certain man gave a great supper, and he invited many. And he sent his servant at supper time to say to those, excuse me, to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. Let me know, Jesus is saying, you need to, be, you need to get yourself ready because all things are prepared and ready. But notice this. They all... With one accord, began to do what? Underline it. Make excuses. They began to make excuses. The first said, who's the servant? The servant is God's children that are still on the planet telling people, you need to come to God's house. You need to get born again. You need to come to church with me. You need to get ready for Jesus' return. And you know what people do? You know what they tell you? They make excuses. Even people who claim they're believers but don't have time for church anymore. So here they are making excuses. The first said to him, well, I bought a piece of ground, man. I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. I ask you to what? So this is referring, in essence, the context of the person here that sent the servant out to invite them is the Lord. We're his servants inviting people on behalf of the Lord to come and be a part of the family of God and be ready for Jesus' return. And many say, I ask you to have me excused. I don't have time. I got some land to take care of. 19, another said, I bought, a, I bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me what? Excused. Still another said, I've just married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to who? His master, His master our master. Then the master of the house, being angry. What was he? Angry. He wasn't real happy about their excuses. No, I said he wasn't very happy about their excuses. This is Jesus talking, folks. 
So the, the master of the house being angry said to his servant, I want you to go out to the city. I want you to bring here the poor. I want you to bring the maimed, the lame, the blind. The servant said, Master, it's done as you commanded. There's still room. Where's he wanting his, what rooms he wanted filled? His house. He wants his house filled so people obviously are serving God and ready to go. 23, then the master said to the servant, go out into the highways, the hedges, compel them to come in that my house may be what? Well, there you go. What does he want? What does he want? Wants his house filled. Why? Because these are people that will be ready when he comes. Verse 24, notice this. For I say to you, Jesus said it. Don't get mad at me. I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. They gave excuses of why they don't have time for church, don't have time to serve God, don't have time to read their Bible, don't have time to pray. On and on and on. Number four. The three excuses Jesus taught us here of the last days. A, I bought some land. What's that all about? A1, this represents, represents our what? Possessions. The more you have, guess what, folks? The more you have to take care of. I'm not going to go through it tonight. I've given you the story about the guy in pastor's church. Him and his wife were faithful, had nothing, started serving God. God started blessing them. They bought a big piece of property. All of a sudden, he stopped seeing them at church. He drives out there one day to talk to them. Lo and behold, they're out there working on their property. I think it was a Saturday, maybe, maybe a Sunday afternoon. I think it was in between services, Sunday afternoon. Went out there on a Sunday afternoon before evening service. They're out there mowing their property. He stops and talks to the guy. How you doing? Oh, we're, we're doing good, Pastor. He said, how come you're not in church anymore? Well, we got the land to take care of now. I got to mow it on Sunday because I work on Saturdays. He said, I got a word for you. Let your grass grow and cover your car and go to heaven. Let your, let your land go, in other words, if you have to. Don't stop serving God. You're going you're gonna to tell me you're not going to serve God because you've got to mow your grass. But there are people today with their possessions. I don't have time. I've got too much to take care of. I've got a word for you. Have you got too much to take care of, personal possessions, that keep you from serving God? Are you listening to me? You know what you need to do? Get rid of some of your possessions. You've got too much. You've got way too much. You don't need all that to take care. And you're going to miss out on the rapture possibly because you're too busy with stuff. Folks, it ain't worth it. I said it ain't worth it. I'm just, I'm just quoting Jesus to you. 4B, I have oxen now. What's this represent? A business or your job. To them, oxen was a business or their job. They had to plow their fields. That's how they made their living. Well, I got to go try out my oxen. Well, this represents a business or your job. B2, these people couldn't come because they were too busy working, earning money now. You know, you need to take care of your family. You need to make money. But all of a sudden, I made a decision a long time ago. I'm not serving Pharaoh. I'm not working for anybody that's not going to let me go and serve my God. That's what Pharaoh did. Pharaoh would not let the children of Israel. Children of Israel said, let us go out here to the wilderness and worship our God and we'll come back. What did Pharaoh say? Uh Uh-uh. No, it's a work day, folks. You're going to work today. I'm not working any job in the natural that's going to keep me from being able to serve my God and go to God's house. You listening? Where I have no time for God, no time for church, can't go, can't do anything and serving with God. I'm going to tell you right now, there ain't no job worth that, folks. Appreciate all your amens tonight. 4C, what was the third excuse? Well, I've married a wife. I'm married now. Well, this, of course, represents what? Family time. We all need to take care of our family. Any amens on that? 
I said we all need to take care of our family. Notice, we need to do so properly, but we can't allow them to separate us from Christ or his service. We are to be serving him what? Together as a family. It's what I love about seeing all these kids in here serving, doing things as a part of their family. That's awesome. I said, that's awesome. D, realize, realize that all of these people had an excuse and gave it. But Jesus would not do what? He would not receive them as a good enough excuse. Is that what he said? He would not receive them as good enough excuses. Many will be shocked on judgment day, folks. Yeah, but here's my excuse. Sorry. Just quoting Jesus to you. We're going to look at this one last verse, 1 Timothy 4, in closing. And I'll just show you and refer to the others that he just added to your notes there. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. Excuses of the last days. What was that old saying? Excuses, excuses. What was that? Oh, that's good. <laughs> so let's slow down again. Excuses, excuses. There's a little song. Excuses, excuses. You hear them every day. The devil will supply them. From church, you'll stay away. When someone comes to know the Lord, the devil always loses. So to keep him out of church, he offers them excuses. Pretty good. I said pretty good. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. You know there'll be times you miss church. We're talking about to the degree that you cannot serve God at all with you, with your family. Do the things that God wants you to do according to the scriptures. Strengthen your walk with him. Be stronger and fortified. This is all about, this ain't about church attendance, folks. This is about staying strong spiritually. This is about about staying stout and strong spiritually so you're prepared for the stuff that's coming down the pike. From the enemy. First Timothy chapter 4, 16. Take heed to who? Yourself. Yourself and to the doctrine. What's the doctrine? The teaching of the word of God that you receive like tonight. What should you do? Take heed to yourself and to what? What should you do tonight with what you were given? Take heed to this teaching. Not just hear it, put it away and say, okay, yeah, another sermon. Another, another one of pastors, you know, on and on sermons about what we got to do in the last days. Bless God. No, that's not taking heed to what you were taught. Take heed to, the, to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them. Continue in them. Why? For in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who what? Those who hear you. Some other scripture references here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, 18 and 19 and 4 and 1. Warning about the last days again. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 1 through 5 and 4, 3 through 5. Tell your neighbor, no more excuses. We need to be aware. You need to be very careful and aware that we are not starting to make excuses as to why now all of a sudden we can't make church anymore like we used to. You know, there might be a season in your life. Something happens, things happen, whatever. You know, I've known people that have gone through a season in their life battling physically, couldn't make church. That's not an excuse. That's a battle. We're not talking about that. But we're talking about things where all of a sudden stuff starts becoming more important in God. God goes on the back burner, becomes less and less important. And ladies and gentlemen, if that's the case, guess what's going to happen? Your love for God will grow cold. You can claim that it won't, but the Bible says otherwise. So let's make sure we're not making excuses in the last days. Could I get an amen on that?
pray that you are blessed by the message Pastor Baker shared with you today. For more spiritual resources that can help you in your walk with God, or to invite Pastor Baker as a guest speaker, just go to our website at cffchurch.com. You will find additional teachings by video, audio, and printed resources that will be a blessing to you. May God's very best be yours.